You see, it's not just that these people are associated with 666 in the Bible. It's that they are the only ones. How can you possibly say the only people associated with the number producing the number is just by random coincidence when God told us to count this number? This is not just about the mark of the beast, 666. This is about right now. That's the person associated with the number, and that's the number. The subject matter that we touch at the end of this video will be even more important than the amazing discoveries in the beginning of it. Do not let somebody convince you that only Greek and Hebrew can be perfect because that's not scriptural. Let's actually look at what the scripture says. This is one of the most serious things we could ever discuss. God is the God of details, the God of numbers, the God of truth. God has given us this proof that his word is true. And the serpent is trying to break that truth down. And today, we're going to face the serpent head on. Revelation, the number of the beast is 603 score and 6, as it says in the King James Bible, which is 666. In this channel, we have shown so many patterns dealing with Jesus Christ and all these crazy patterns with him being seven, and how when the Sabbath first shows up, he gets attacked by a group of Pharisees, and what does he do? He points back to the 7,777 verse of the Bible. And when Peter catches 153 fishes, it just so happens that the name Peter shows up in 153 verses. So, in the King James Bible, there are all these numerical signs that point to God's inspiration over the text and over this translation of the Bible. And it's not in original languages. It's not in Hebrew and Greek. It's in English, which throws a lot of people off. And I can understand why, because it's taught in Christian schools, in Christian seminaries and churches. It is taught everywhere in general in Christianity that only in the original languages can the Bible be perfect. I will gladly show you scripture after we go through these numbers. I will gladly show you scripture that 100% rebukes that idea. I'll show you in the New Testament and the Old Testament. And I, I challenge you to come back to me with scriptures that say that only the Hebrew and Greek or the original languages can be perfect. You'll never find such a scripture. However, I will show you scriptures that completely contradict what you are saying when you say only Hebrew and Greek can be perfect. <laughs> it's pretty plain. Uh, so we'll get into that after these numbers, but first let me just emphasize two things. Number one, 666 is the only number that the Holy Ghost actually tells us to count in the Bible. So when we find all these amazing patterns with the number 153 and 70 times 7 and all these other amazing things with Jesus and God and the Father and Son and all these 
miraculous signs that God has given us in inspired Bible, he never really told us to look for those numbers. And even though they are quite clear once you actually look into it, this is different. This is on a different level because in the text itself, it says, He that hath understanding, let him count the number of the beast. So you have a direct statement in the Bible from God himself telling you to count this number. So if we can find a very, very clear connection between 666 in the text of itself, in the mathematical structure of the Bible itself, dealing with the people who are associated with 666, you can see that God's fingerprint, his hand, is on this Bible. Number two, the King James Bible is the most printed Bible in the history of the world, far surpassing original languages, far surpassing any other Bible. And it's still to this day the most read Bible in daily Bible study. People stick to the King James 400 plus years after it has been printed. And there's a reason for that. So after we go through these numbers, I'm going to go through something that at first I was kind of hesitating towards, but then after praying about this video, I've actually redone this video two times now. And the reason I had to redo it is because I felt like this was not at all going like God wanted me to do this. And after I, I, it didn't feel easy in my spirit. So I started praying about it and I started asking God, you know, how do you want this to be done? And he gave the answer quite clearly to me. And we are going to rebuke modern translations in this video. I don't say that lightly. I hope that you can look at this. If you read modern Bibles, I pray that you look at this with humility of mind, and I will do my best to show this with all humility of mind, that these translations are not a product of God's wisdom, and they are not a product of His will, but they are a product of the serpent. I will spell that out as easily as I can for you, with real examples showing you from the text of these modern versions themselves. And I'm just going to show you why the serpent did that. Why the devil, why Satan had in mind to bring about all these modern translations. Now, you're, if you think I'm crazy right now, I just ask you to watch until the end of the video before you judge. And I think you're going to understand where I'm coming from. So. Let's get into, first of all, showing you the numbers in the King James, just to show you how perfectly structured this Bible is and why you can 100% know, without a shadow of a doubt, doing what God told you to do, count the number of the beasts, verify this is the book of the Lord, Isaiah 34, 16, where a perfect book is prophesied. Let's dig in. So what you see right now are the only three people in the Bible that are associated with this number of 600, three score, and six. Now, when I say three score, that's how the King James words it in some cases, and in some cases, it words it as 60. Now, three score is the same as 60, and what does three score mean? Well, it means three scores. A similar way to look at it would be like three dozens. If you have a dozen eggs, you have 12. If you have three dozens, you have three twelves, or thirty-six. 
A score is the same type of language, but you're talking about 20 instead of 12. So if you say you have three score, that means you have 60 or three 20s. Okay, so three score is 60. It's the exact same thing, exact same equivalent, just so you understand that. And there is a very clear reason why it, <laughs> the Bible separates that according to the wisdom of the Holy Spirit. You're going to see that with out question. Solomon, Adonikam, and the beast. So Solomon is interesting because he receives 666 talents of gold and weight in a year. And that's found in 1 Kings 10.14 and 2 Chronicles 9.13. Solomon was a type of Christ and then out of nowhere just switches over to a type of Antichrist, completely going against God and serving other gods. Now Adonikam He's not really like good or bad. He's just kind of in the text and out of nowhere he has 666 children. And his name means Lord rise up. Like the combination of those two words. So people sometimes say the Lord of rebellion or the Lord of enemies. Um, I don't know. It's just interesting that that's his name. And yeah, he has 666 children in Ezra. And then that's the only reference to him having 666 children. He actually is um, mentioned in Nehemiah, but it says he has 667 children. So it's interesting, there's just one time where he has 666 children. And then we have the beast. The beast is the Antichrist, and his mark, his number, is 666. And that's where everybody knows 666 from, is from the beast. A lot of people don't know that Solomon receives 666 talents of gold in a year, and even fewer people know about Adonikam with 666 children. But these are the only three people in the entire Bible that are associated with this number. So how do these people prove that the King James Bible is the perfect word of God? So let's check out Solomon first, because Solomon has a lot of interesting things going on. Not as interesting as the beast, but we'll get to, we'll build up. We'll get to the more interesting things last. Now the weight of gold that came to Solomon in one year was 603 score and six talents of gold. Notice how I have in one year underlined. In the Bible, in the prophetic calendar of God's timeline, whenever you see a year, it's dealing with 360 days. So in total weight, 666 talents of gold comes to Solomon in 360 days. You're gonna just watch how this builds. 600 plus 3 score plus 6 in the King James Bible gives you 360 mentions. The exact amount of days that Solomon receives the 603 score and 6 talents of gold, it's in 360 days he receives it, and that's how many mentions you get. So let me put this in pure Bible search. So the King James Pure Bible Search is 100% free to download where you can fact check all of this. And I guarantee you, it is the most accurate software. I've been using it for a long time now. I have compared it with other Bible softwares. And when it comes to counting and getting accurate counts, other Bible softwares, they are not built for that. They give you accurate counts. It's just they have these quirks that you have to get around. And if you don't know what they are, you're, gonna, you're just gonna, not going to end up getting the right results. Well, you're not going to know how to get the right results, I should say. So... Here we have 600, three score, 
and six. So I just added three different search phrases, and when you combine all of them together, you get a total of 360 mentions in the King James Bible. So a little bit interesting that we have the exact amount of days that Solomon received the gold. Now, if that were it, that would be nothing, right? Like, who cares? But watch how this builds. Let's go up here. With that exact same search phrase, all you have to do is include Solomon in all forms of his name, and you jump from 360 mentions to exactly 666. Let's verify that again. All we need to do, add a search phrase, Solomon. So it's going to be Solomon or Solomon with an apostrophe, yeah, Solomon or Solomons. And in pure Bible search, if you just add the asterisk, it'll give you both. If you click this little drop down that says show matching words and phrases, it'll show you all the different things that you have uh, currently with this asterisk. So we're looking at both Solomon and Solomons, and it's giving us a total of 666 mentions when you combine that number and the name of Solomon. Now, this gets kind of deep, and it gets into many different rabbit trails. And the purpose of this video is to get into the King James Bible and its perfection with this number. But if you're actually studying out in depth, I mean, I guess this is kind of related to numbers. Okay, so let's just go here real quick. Revelation 13, 18 says this. Here is wisdom. Who represents wisdom in the Bible? The New Testament, obviously, is Jesus Christ. He surpasses Solomon by far in wisdom. But in the Old Testament, you have Solomon being the embodiment, representation of wisdom, the wisest man in all the earth. We hear it all the time. So Solomon, here is wisdom. Solomon's associated with wisdom. Let him that hath understanding count the number of the beasts, for it is the number of a man. And his number is 600, threescore, and six. So, interestingly, Solomon, who represents wisdom, he wrote most of the book of Proverbs, the book of wisdom, and then Ecclesiastes and Song of Solomon. Now, Ecclesiastes is also dealing with wisdom. And it just so happens that Solomon, the representation of wisdom in the Bible, in his book of Ecclesiastes, you will find the 666th chapter of the Bible. Ecclesiastes 7 is the 666th chapter of the Bible. Now look what it says in verses 25 to 27. It says, I applied mine heart to know and to search and to seek out wisdom and the reason of things and to know the wickedness of folly even of foolishness and madness. And I find more bitter than death the woman. You know who shows up in Revelation 17? The woman, the mother of harlots and abominations, whose heart is snares and nets, and her hands as bands. Whoso pleaseth God shall escape from her, but the sinner shall be taken by her. Behold, this have I found, saith the preacher, counting one by one to find out the account. So we have Solomon representing wisdom, and he even says in this chapter, 666 chapter of the Bible, he applies his heart to seek out wisdom, 
and behold this have I found, say, if the preacher, counting one by one to find out the account. That's in the 666th chapter of the Bible. And then you have this thing going on with the woman, which is a perfect parallel with the woman in Revelation. Now, this, the first word of this verse, where it says, Behold this have I found, saith the preacher, counting one by one to find out the account. That's the 666th mention of that word, behold, in the entire Bible, in the King James Bible. So anyways, Solomon is also author of the 666th chapter in the Bible, in the canon of Scripture. And him and this number gives you 666 mentions. So you can look at that in multiple different aspects. In the text of the Bible itself and in the structure of the Bible itself. So, if you actually dig into combining different search phrases together around Solomon, there are several different ways you can get 666. Actually, many. And I only included a couple here. I included the, the strongest ones that I found, but there are a lot. Now, if you have enough combinations, you can get whatever you want. But this, I mean, that's the person associated with the number, and that's the number. I mean, there's what are we doing? We're, we're not picking and choosing or cherry picking, are we? That's just directly what's in the text of the Bible. Now, it gets 100 times scarier and worse than that. So, first of all, this one's not uh, too intimidating, I would say, but Solomon plus gold plus in one year gives you 666 mentions in the Old Testament. Okay, anyways, I'm not going to go over this whole chart, by the way. I'm going to make this chart available in the video description, but I'm just kind of going through the more prominent patterns, and you can feel free to go through, through it yourself. But anyways, I just wanted to let you know, I'm, I'm not going to go through the whole thing. It would take way too long. So let's get into the beast. If you look up in the entire Bible, beast, the apostrophe S, or just beast by itself, plus mark, plus sin. Remember the number of the beast? What is the sin? What is his sin? What is his mark? You get 666 mentions. So if we clear this out, let's type in beast or beasts. Now the reason I don't add an asterisk here is because if I did, you would see that it adds beasts, plural. And we don't want the plural form of beasts, we just want beast. So beast or beast with an apostrophe, yes. And then we have mark, and then we have sin. Now, if we wanted to keep it consistent for the sake of consistency, there is no mentions of mark with an apostrophe, yes, or sin. Whoops, I'm putting a parentheses here. There is no mentions of Mark with an apostrophe S or Sins with an apostrophe S. So in total, you have 666 mentions of Beast, Mark, and Sin in the King James Bible. And in the Old Testament alone, with that exact same search phrase, you get 490 mentions. 70 times 7. 
Do you know why that would be significant in the showing up in the Old Testament with 70 times 7? The New Testament, we have 70 times 7 being referenced by Jesus Christ in talking about forgiveness of sins to Peter in Matthew 18.22. In the Old Testament, there is another reference to 70 times 7, and that's Daniel's 70 weeks. And guess when the mark of the beast is implemented? In Daniel's 70th week, in his 70th seven. So, in the Old Testament, you have beast plus mark plus sin with 70 times 7 mentions. And in the entire Bible, you have 666 mentions. Okay, so if you look up number or numbers plus mark plus sin, so we'll just type in number or numbers. Again, you get 666 mentions in the Bible. All right. If you look up beast by itself, just look up beast. The number of the beast is 666. It gives you 60 plus 60 plus 60 mentions in the Bible. And in the Old Testament alone, it gives you 132, which is 66 plus 66 mentions. So that's a lot of strong connection, especially when you look at all these people combined. So let's go ahead and let's look at what happens when you combine all three of these people together. And after that, I'm going to show you a nuance that proves to me that the word threescore and the word 60 in the King James Bible are deliberately separated by God himself. And I sound like a crazy person right now, but you're going to see why, trust me. Okay, so... <laughs> Okay, so Solomon plus Adonikam plus Beast, the only three people associated with this number in the Bible, plus the word six gives you 666 mentions. Solomon, Adonikam, Beast, six. This isn't even the best one. I don't know. I mean, that's insane. Just that in itself is insane. And when I, when I actually originally found this, I didn't know about the other one, which was greater than this one. But I, I couldn't believe my eyes. <laughs> Those are the only three people. The number of associated with them is 666. I mean, I'm not crazy, right? I mean, that's just pretty straightforward. How does that happen? Especially when you combine it with all the things going on with Solomon. But like I said, it gets worse. How does it get worse than that? Well, that's up here. You see, when you combine their names plus the full number, you don't get 666 mentions. 
you get 666 verses. So let's change this to 600. Three score and six. You get 666 verses. The only people associated with that number, with the number itself. Now, I mean, this is ludicrous. This really can't be. This is the one number in the Bible. Let me remind you that we are actually told to count. And do you think this is some sort of accident that is in God's own book? The most printed book in history? Now, this is even harder to wrap your mind around because Adonikam, Adonikam, he is not the key figure here when it, when it comes to prophecy, when it comes to the Antichrist kingdom. Solomon is the type, and the beast is the fulfillment, the antitype. So, we have this interesting thing going on. If I disable Adonikam, it's going to drop the mentions, but it's not going to drop the verses. And why is that? If I enable him, look, it stays at 666 verses. Why is that? That's because every single time Adonikam is mentioned, He's in the same verse as either 600 or 3 score or 6. That's kind of interesting. Because it works with or without him. Furthermore, if you disable 600, again, your mentions drop, but look, you are still dealing with 666 verses. When all you have left is Solomon, Beast, and then three score and six. Three score and six. Sixty and six. What is sixty times six? This is going to get your head spinning. Sixty times six is 360. 360 is how many times 600 plus 3 score plus 6 shows up in the Bible. Is your head spinning yet? Now, let's make your head spin even further. Let's go to Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar builds a 60 by 6 image. Nebuchadnezzar the king made an image of gold whose height was 3 score cubits and the breadth thereof 6 cubits. He set it up in the plain of Dura, in the province of Babylon. Do you know what this is paralleling? Shadowing. So, like we said with Solomon, this is the same thing, but showing you in different form. Because 360 equals 60 times 6. 600 plus 3 squared plus 6 equals 60 times 6 mentions. Which is th these kind of dimensions, but... Interestingly, by the way, Nebuchadnezzar is mentioned 60 times in the Bible, the exact height of his image. Now, look at the parallel here between the image of Nebuchadnezzar and the image of the beast. If you're not familiar with the Bible, 
the image of the beast, which is going to be, become alive, could be artificial intelligence, could be a clone of him himself. Like the technology has come this far where it's just you don't know. But basically what we have here in Daniel is paralleling what happens in Revelation. In Daniel it says, Nebuchadnezzar the king made an image of gold whose height was three square cubits and breadth thereof six cubits. And he sets it up in Babylon, by the way, and in Revelation we're dealing with mystery Babylon. Now in Revelation 13, 14, it says, And deceiveth them that dwell on the earth by the means of those miracles, which he had power to do in the sight of the beast, saying to them that dwell on the earth, that they should make an image to the beast, which had the wound by a sword and did live. So he commands them to make an image to the beast. And Nebuchadnezzar makes an image of gold. Now, look how it parallels. It says, Then an herald cried aloud, To you it is commanded, O people, nations, and languages. And over here it says, And power was given him over all kindreds and tongues and nations. And he exerciseth all the power of the first beast before him. So, chapter, uh, so Revelation 13.7 is talking about the first beast and his power. And then Revelation 13.12 is talking about the second beast. And he re he's receiving all the power of the first beast. He's receiving the power of all kindreds, tongues, and nations. And he exerciseth all the power of the first beast before him, and causeth the earth and them which dwell therein to worship the first beast whose deadly wound was healed. Okay. That at what time ye hear the sound of the cornet, flute, harp, sackbut, psaltery, dulcimer, and all kinds of music, ye fall down and worship the golden image that Nebuchadnezzar the king hath set up. So you're saying, well, this one is saying to worship the beast, and this one is saying to worship the image. Well, yeah, but look. It says, And he had power to give life unto the image of the beast, that the image of the beast should both speak, and cause that as many as would not worship the image of the beast should be killed. And whoso falleth not down and worshipeth, shall the same hour be cast into the midst of a burning fiery furnace. Of course, you know from Sunday school what happens. How Jesus Christ shows up in that furnace. Now, worshiping the image and receiving the mark go hand in hand. Because right after it threatens, uh, the, the image itself is threatening and, and caused that as many as would not worship the image of the beast should be killed. That's the image forcing this. And I know that because it says the image of the beast should not speak, but both speak and cause. That both links the speak and the cause back to the image as the source. So the image of the beast should both speak and cause. That as many as would not worship the image of the beast should be killed. So that image is causing people to be killed who does not, does not worship itself. Um, so in verses 15 to 16, And cause that as many as would not worship the image of the beast should be killed, and he causeth all, both small and great, rich and poor, free and bond, to receive a mark in their right hand or in their foreheads. Notice how the worship of this image is directly associated with that mark. And the images of that beast, the, which, who, the, beast, the number of the beast is 666. That's how you know who the beast is. So this image, which is alive and forcing people to take this mark, is also directly connected to the number of 666. So basically... We have this 60 times 6 statue 
by Nebuchadnezzar. And we have 600 plus 3 squared plus 6 showing up 60 times 6 times. 600, 3 squared and 6 associated with the mark of the beast, the number of the beast. 60 times 6 associated with the image of Nebuchadnezzar. 603 squared and 6 associated with the image of the beast, the, the beast himself and his image and his number. And 60 times 6 associated with Nebuchadnezzar's image of gold. Do you see how perfectly in multiple different dimensions now these things are layering together? So, anyways, there's a whole bunch of stuff going on in this chart. And we're going to touch on some more things in a minute here. But before I continue, I said how original languages, how can we know that it's a false teaching that original languages are not the only way that we can receive God's word perfectly? How do we know that God's word is able to be translated and still be perfect? How can we know for sure? Do we have a scripture to say such a thing? Of course we do. We don't have a scripture that says original onlys will be perfect. We actually have scripture that says the exact opposite of that. It's in Isaiah, and it's also in 1 Corinthians. Let me read the 1 Corinthians one first, and let me make a point. So in 1 Corinthians, if any, any, of, if any pastor or teacher who you try to show this information to, tries to bring up original languages, I'm going to give you right now the scripture that is directly going against them. It is probably not their fault that they believe that. They are just, they're just believing what they have been trained to believe. Unfortunately, I'm, I'm wording it like that, but what they've been taught to believe. The Bible is God's word. It's the highest authority, and it goes above the authority of anybody who speaks against it. One of the biggest issues that the Pharisees had was they would make the Word of God of none effect with their own traditions, with their own man-made doctrines and commandments. They would supersede the Word of God. Don't let that happen to you. Do not let somebody convince you that only Greek and Hebrew can be perfect because that's not scriptural. Let's actually look at what the scripture says with humble hearts. It says in 1 Corinthians 14, 21. Now, if you think I'm taking this out of context, just hold your horses, okay? Just hold on. It says, in the law it is written, with men of other tongues and other lips will I speak unto this people. And yet for all that will they not hear me, saith the Lord. Wherefore, tongues are for a sign, not to them that believe, but to them that believe not. What I'm, the whole point of showing you this passage is, what does it say? It says, with men of other tongues and other lips will I speak unto this people. God is directly saying he is not going to speak to them in the original languages. And that's the point I'm trying to make. God himself is going to speak. Let's just like forget about who it's addressing. Whoever it's addressing, God is speaking in different languages than the original languages. 
can God speak in other languages? Now, you say, well, this isn't talking about the Bible. Actually, maybe it is. I'm not sure 100%. But I'm going to read you in context in the Old Testament. It's in Isaiah 28. So, this in verse number 11, it says, For with stammering lips and another tongue will he speak to this people. Now, notice how it's another tongue singular. And if you actually pay attention to 1 Corinthians, he's not using the scripture as like, this is fulfilled right now. He's using it just as an example. And it's interesting here how it says, for with stammering lips and another tongue, another language, one language, will he speak to this people. Now, I'm not 100% saying this is it, but it's a very good possibility because look at the previous verse that this is talking about the Bible in English. For precept must be upon precept, precept upon precept, line upon line, line upon line, when it says line upon line, line upon line. If you talk about a Bible verse, that word verse, that word is a noun, and if you look at the etymology of what that is, it's a line or a section of a psalm or canticle or a line of poetry, a line of verse. This is literally etymologically connected to a Bible verse. So just keep that in mind as you watch this, as you read this. Line upon line, here a little and there a little. For with stammering lips and another tongue will he speak to this people, to whom he said, This is the rest, wherewith ye may cause the weary to rest. And this is the refreshing, really. This is the rest, this is the refreshing. Yet they would not hear. But the word of the Lord was unto them precept upon precept. Precept upon precept. It's repeating itself now. It's, it's sandwiching that verse about speaking other tongues with precept upon precept, line upon line. Line upon line, line upon line, here a little and there a little, that they might go and fall backward and be broken and snared and taken. Really, God's limited to original languages. When he directly says that he's going to speak in a stam with stammering lips in another tongue, what do you mean he only speaks in original languages? You're wrong. You're wrong according to the Bible. Okay, so now that's done. Let's get into how God, how Jesus, both. 666 is the serpent. 666 is the devil himself. And let's get into that nuance that I was talking about, because I was saying there's three score in the Bible, and there's 60. So let me show you that real quick. Notice how Adonikam... It says the children of Adonikam, 660 and 6. 60, not 3 score. But Solomon, it says 603 score and 6. And the beast, it said 603 score and 6. This is, this is mind-boggling. If... Let's go back to this. So, if this was different, if we were have... If we were to have that scholarly consistency between three score and 60, where we're going to make all of the 60s 
three score or vice versa. We're going to make all of the three scores 60. We're going to update the King James language because it's outdated and archaic. So we're going to change all those three scores to 60. So what would happen? Well, all of those mentions, all those 93 mentions of three score would now become 60. So let's just add them together. Everything breaks. It no longer works. Now we're dealing with 678 verses because there are verses where 60 is mentioned, but three score is not. So not only this pattern breaks, let's enable these. So not only would this pattern break, let's just do the one of Solomon by himself. So Solomon or Solomon's and look, we don't have 666 mentions anymore. This pattern now breaks. But what gives me 100% assurance that God has purposely separated three score and 60? Look at the first mention of three score. It says, and these are the days of the years of Abraham's life, which he lived, 103 score in 15 years. That's the first mention of three score. The last mention, Revelation 13, 18. For it is the number of a man, and his number is 603 score and six. So the last mention gives you three score in the middle of the 666. But the first mention of three score, what's the big deal about it? That's the 666th verse of the entire Bible. Genesis 25-7, where three score is first mentioned, is the 666th verse of the Bible. Now, there are several times, if I type in 60, If I type in 60, there are several times before three score shows up where these could have been three score. Look at all these mentions of 60. So you have six mentions of 60, and then instead of 60, it goes to three score on the 666th verse. Now, do you really think the King James translators were like, oh, now that it's the 666 verse, now we're going to change it from 60 to 3 score? There's, they don't have the verse numbers counted. And just look. So it goes 3 score, 3 score, and then it jumps to 60 out of nowhere here for these two times. It just, there's really no logical consistency going on. And... If these things, like I said, if it was just adjusted by one or two mentions, the whole thing gets thrown off. All the counts, all the patterns get messed up. So it's not even like, okay, we're going to combine all of them into three score and 60. It's if, for whatever reason, if the, the, the translators, the King James Bible was, for whatever reason, had a different balance of 93 and 15 between these two words, all these things would break apart. That's how I know that it's 
of God because it's the first mention is of three scores here in the 666 verse when it didn't have to be. I mean, that's just, you're dealing with astronomical odds of this happening, especially when you look at the big picture. And I don't know if it's making sense or if it's clicking or not, but when you actually apply your mind to this and you actually start thinking about these things and how it all fits together, it is really hard to attribute to random chance. So anyways, let's real quickly dive into the serpent, and then we're going to dive into Satan and Jehoiakim, and then we're going to get into what, why? The modern translations. Why did the serpent come out with these modern translations, and why do I think the serpent is the one who's behind them? So, first of all, just, this is going to be really quick. This is the first time that Satan shows up in your Bible. In Genesis chapter 3, in the very first verse, it says, Now the serpent was more subtle than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said unto the woman, Yea, hath God said. The first thing that Satan does is he questions the word of God. Yea, hath God said. That's the first thing he does, and he is still doing it to this day. Now the serpent was more subtle. That's the first mention of serpent. That's the first mention of more. And that's the first mention of subtle in the Bible. Actually, a quick way to verify that is with Kevin Mann's first mention Bible. Currently, this is in paperback form, but he's actually going to have it in a real Bible format here by the end of the year. So this Bible is really interesting because it has all of the words that are bold. Those are all the first mentioned words. And if it's bold and underlined, that means it's the only mention. It's not just the first, but it's the only mention. So here in Genesis chapter 3, as you can see, serpent is bold, more is bold, and subtle is bold. That means they're the first mentions of those words. So immediately we have the serpent questioning the word of God. And what does God do to the serpent in his book? Here we have serpent, more, subtle. Now, these are the key words that first show up about Satan, and they're both all first mentions. And look, 666 verses. I mean, that's pretty crazy that immediately when Satan shows up, you can that easily attribute a 666 to him. That has to have been of God. And 727 mentions is interesting, because like we were saying with Ecclesiastes 727 being the 666th chapter of the Bible, there could be a connection with that as well, where it was dealing with counting one by one to find out the account, and then you have 666 verses. So that is pretty interesting. Now, besides the serpent, we have Jehoiakim. Now, Jehoiakim, if you're not familiar with Jehoiakim, I'm not going to get into the history now because there's not enough time, but he's the son of Josiah, and he is appointed as king over Judah by Pharaoh, by the great dragon, basically, of Egypt. And he's the first king in Judah, by the way, who is given power, his throne, by a foreign power, for, by a foreign entity. So, the first mention of Jehoiakim is in the 666th verse 
of Second Kings. That's his first mention of Jehoiakim. Jehoiakim is blotted out of the genealogy of Jesus Christ. Where in verse number 11, uh, well, verse 10, it says, And Ezekiah, which is Hezekiah, begat Manassas, and Manassas begat Ammon, and Ammon begat Josias, which is Josiah, and Josias begat Jeconias and his brethren. Now, Jeconias is the son of Jehoiakim. He also goes by Jehoiakim, or Jeconiah, but, or, or also Coniah. But Josiah didn't directly begat him. Josiah begat Jehoiakim, and Jehoiakim begat Jeconias. But that's not what it says. It eliminates, it omits Jehoiakim. This is, this is the, how it goes, and then eventually it goes to Christ. But what did Jehoiakim do that was so evil that got him to be blotted out of God's book? He set the written word of God on fire. He's the one who Jeremiah had written the words of God in a book. And they came and read those words in a book to Jehoiakim in, in wintertime when he's sitting. And he takes the written word of God, the book, and he throws it into the fire. He cuts it up with a penknife and throws it into the fire. He burns the word of God. And what did God do in return? He burns him. Gives him a 666 where he's first mentioned, and blots him out of the genealogy of Christ. Do not mess with God's word. Do not mess with his book. In 666 verses from the time that God speaks to Solomon, look at this. It says, now all these verses are 666 verses away, but this one especially is interesting. It says, but if ye turn away and forsake my statutes and my commandments, which I have set before you, and shall go and serve other gods and worship them. So if you turn away, if you forsake my statutes, my commandments, which I said before you, basically, if you turn away from my word, if you forget my word, 666 verses later, but they mocked the messengers of God and despised his words and misused his prophets until the wrath of the Lord arose against his people till there was no remedy. And it says, then will I pluck them up by the roots out of my land? This is God warning Solomon. This, none of this stuff is even close to happening yet. But 666 verses later, therefore he brought upon them the king of the Chaldees, and, and then eventually, and they burnt the house of God and break down the wall of Jerusalem and burnt all the palaces thereof with fire and destroyed all the goodly vessels thereof. Brings it all to Babylon, plucks them up. Do not mess with the word of God. God's word is pure and light and truth. And when you start twisting it and messing with it and setting yourself up as an authority over it, or if you start holding up your traditions over it, it doesn't make God very happy, and it doesn't make very much sense for you to do such a thing, because who are you to do such a thing? Who are we? Who are we to elevate, to promote ourselves above the Word of God? Yet that's what's happening so much today in churches with this original language stuff. Now, I have nothing against reading the Bible in Hebrew and Greek, by the way. I don't read Hebrew and Greek, but I have nothing against you if you read the Bible in Hebrew and Greek. I believe that's the Word of God. God has specific things going on in those languages. There's mathematical patterns in those languages. So I'm not trying to 
attack Hebrew and Greek. But what I'm saying is when you hold those only, only, and you force the Word of God to only be in those languages as perfect, that's when you're making a mistake. That's when you're erring and you're going against the Scriptures. You're going against God's Word Himself. Anyways, Jesus versus Satan in the wilderness. We're going to go through this, and then we're going to go into modern translations and why I personally believe they are a work of the devil. And not that anybody who is translating them is have has evil intentions. Not that the people who are publishing them have evil intentions. I don't know who those people are. I'm not attacking anybody specifically. I'm just going to show you objectively how I believe these are of the devil and not of God. So, Jesus versus Satan in the wilderness. So we have Matthew 4.4. 4. But he answered and said, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of God. So what happens in the wilderness? When Jesus is fasting for 40 days, he's hungry, and then the devil comes to tempt him, what does Jesus rebuke the devil with? The scriptures. The Word of God only. He doesn't use anything else but the Scriptures. He only uses the Scriptures. And interestingly, he only quotes from one book of the Scriptures. So Matthew 4.4, 4, he is quoting Deuteronomy 8.3. Man doth not live by bread only, but by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of the Lord doth man live. He is quoting from Deuteronomy every single time. Now, when I saw that, I was immediately, because I've, God has allowed me to, to see these patterns that are just mind-boggling, this is one of those things where it catches my attention. It's like, wait a second, why did he only quote from Deuteronomy? And I wonder if there's anything significant to that in the book of Deuteronomy. And this is how we get to 660. This is how Jesus 666 is the devil, by only using this book, because watch what happens. If you look at that, all the verses in Deuteronomy, now again, real quickly, because people are going to say, well, chapters and verses are not a part of the original text. Dude, come on, we're not, <laughs> we're dealing with God. He knows the end from the beginning. He knows where his book is going to end up. How many King James Bibles can you find at the bookstore that do not have chapter and verse numbers? They are all there. They are all there as a witness. How do you think that we just looked at all these patterns with the 666 verses and they're not inspired? They're 100%. They're 100% in the foreknowledge of God. He knows how all this is going to take shape. This is his own book. Stop acting like, okay, it was not in the original minds of the people who wrote the book. Of course it wasn't. It was in the mind of the Holy Ghost. Okay, so... Deuteronomy 8.3, verse number 248 of Deuteronomy. So if you count every single verse of Deuteronomy, you get Deuteronomy 8.3 is the 248th. And then you keep going with that logic. So the 210th verse of Deuteronomy is Deuteronomy 6.16, which is what Jesus quotes next. And then the, the last one comes from Deuteronomy 6.13-14, which is the 207th verse of Deuteronomy. But this one is interesting because you get a plus one. And without that plus one, you don't even know you're in verse number 207. So this is another little detail that is just really interesting. Because it says, 
Then saith Jesus unto him, Get thee hence, Satan, for it is written, Thou shalt worship the Lord thy God, and him only shalt thou serve. Now, keep that in mind, that word only. When we go to the verse in Deuteronomy, you're not going to see that word only. And there's a reason for it. It says, Thou shalt fear the Lord thy God, and serve him, and shalt swear by his name. Notice how there's no only. Over here it said, Thou shalt worship the Lord thy God, and him only shalt thou serve. This one says, Thou shalt fear the Lord thy God, and serve him. It doesn't say him only. But look at verse 14. Ye shall not go after other gods, of the gods of the people which are around about you. That's where the only is drawn from. He is drawing the only, because you're not going after other gods, you're only going after the Lord your God which is in verse 13, but he draws the truth of only from verse 14. Now, even though it doesn't say only in verse 14, the verse in itself is saying, you shall only go after the Lord your God, because you shall not go after any other gods. So because he draws the truth from that verse, you can add a plus one to this with all the logical consistency in the world. And the reason for that is because if you don't, if you don't think there's a plus one, if you don't think that he's drawing from this other verse, then you don't even know which verse he's quoting in Deuteronomy. Because in Deuteronomy 10.20, it says nearly the exact same thing. Wasn't that wrong? Thou shalt fear the Lord thy God, him shalt thou serve, and to him shalt thou cleave, and swear by his name. But notice the next verse. He is thy praise, and he is thy God, that hath done for thee these great and terrible things, which thine eyes have seen. There's nothing that you can draw from in this verse that would give you that only, which guarantees you the only, the verse he's drawing from, is in Deuteronomy 6.13, not in Deuteronomy 10.20. So that plus one is needed. You need that plus one, you need that plus one verse where he's drawing the truth from that extra verse in order to get the 666 count. So you have 248 plus 210 plus 207 plus 1. You get 666. The verse positions of every single verse that Jesus uses against the devil in the wilderness gives you 666. Jesus puts the 666 with the scriptures on the devil, and the devil had absolutely no idea this was happening, because the devil didn't have any idea about verse numbers either. But Jesus does, in his foreknowledge. Alright, now let's get into the final one. Like I said, I can't get into everything, but if you want to get into Nero, the woman, Absalom, Judas Iscariot, you can feel free to do that, you can download this chart. Um, I am going to get into the bottom here because this is going to lead into the last part of this video where we're talking about modern translations. So here we're going to be talking about the chief priests and scribes. So for this next part, don't take my word for it. Pray about this. Use discernment and think about these things seriously with a, a serious objective mind if you can. And look at how I'm trying to show this and at least see my perspective. And, like I said, take it before God. We're dealing with scribes. Now, 
If you have read Matthew 23, you will know that Jesus doesn't get along with scribes very much. So, the 666th verse of the New Testament says, Behold, we go up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man shall be betrayed unto the chief priests and unto the scribes, and they shall condemn him to death. Now, if you skip ahead another 666 verses, look where you end up. Mark 7.13. This is Jesus speaking again. Making the word of God, which in context is talking about the scriptures, making the word of God of none effect through your tradition, which ye have delivered, and many such like things do ye. And that guy's been talking about previously, there's a tradition today that is being passed on to students who are becoming pastors, who are propagating that same tradition to all the churches. And the tradition is making the word of God of none effect. Because nobody believes anymore that we have the infallible word of God in our hands. Everybody thinks the infallible word of God is lost in antiquity. So that's just not the case. We have God's word preserved forever, purified seven times. So Matthew 26, 66. Now this is the only, besides John 6, 66, which is detailed with the Judas Iscariot section. Matthew 26, 66 is the only concatenation, the only other concatenation of 666 in the New Testament with chapter and verse reference. And it says, what think ye? They answered and said, he is guilty of death. Who's guilty of death? Jesus. People who are talking are the high priest, the scribes, and the elders. Okay, so let's get into the scribes. The scribes of modern translations. Now again, I'm not attacking the scribes directly here. I don't know the scribes. I can't judge the scribes. And I'm happy to tell you that I'm not judging people here. That's up to Christ. That's up to the Lord to, for God to judge I don't know if these people are saved or not saved, and frankly, I'm not, it doesn't make a difference to me. I'm looking at the Word of God, and I'm looking at what's happening with the church as a whole after what has happened to the Word of God in the late 19th century. So, and not just then, but from then until now. Okay, so. Here's what happens in your ESV, your NIV, and other modern translations. You get doubt casted on the end of Mark 16. So many people already know about this, but if you don't, basically Mark 16 is the last chapter of Mark. And the last verses here from verse 9 to verse 20 are dealing with Christ's resurrection from the dead, and it's dealing with his ascension to the throne of God. Now, this is the only gospel in Mark. So, Matthew does not detail, Luke or John do not detail Christ's ascension to the throne of God, to the right hand of God. That's only in Mark. Now, what scholars have done, what modern Bibles have done, what they have done is they have put this, this line of doubt these brackets of doubt in the middle of verse 8 and verse 9 that say that says something like this. Some of the earliest manuscripts do not include 16, 9 to 20. And then they put the brackets 
here, starting in verse nine and go at the end of the chapter, at the end of the book, they close off the brackets, which is basically casting doubt and leaving it up to you. Do you believe this is the word of God? Yea, hath God said these words? Has are, is this inspired scripture? If it is, why are these brackets here? And if it's not, why are you including it here? It's only casting doubt and doubt and doubt, and that's all it can do. It can never give you any certainty. It can never give you any assurance of whether these verses are inspired or not. That's point number one to take. It can only cast doubt. Here's an NIV, the same thing. This one, they put a line across the entire page and it says in brackets, the earliest manuscripts and some other ancient witnesses do not have Mark 16, 9 to 20. So if you are new to the Bible and you read that, or if an unbeliever reads that, they're immediately going to say, oh, well, the earliest manuscripts don't have this. So I guess I can just cut this out. And this is, isn't actually a part of the Bible. And then there's people who have been reading this their entire lives, and they've read the ending of Mark, and they're saying, what do you mean the earliest manuscripts don't have Mark 16 and 20? I've, this has always been in the Bible, and now all of a sudden, there's doubt being casted on it. So, it depends who you ask. The final authority switches from the Bible to you. You become the final authority on what the Word of God should be. Now, when else does that happen in the Bible? Yea, hath God said, you shall be as gods. Okay, Mark 16, 9-20. Mark 16, 9-20. If it's not authentic scripture, Mark 1 has 45 verses, Mark 2 has 28 verses, Mark 3 has 35 verses, etc., etc. And if you go all the way down and you stop at Mark 16, 1-8, with just 8 verses in the last chapter, you end up with a Gospel of Mark that has a total of 600 and 3 score and 6 verses. So, if this ends, if this, true, if, if this is true, if these earliest manuscripts are right, you are left with a Gospel of Mark that has 666 verses. Isn't that interesting? Mark. Mark. <laughs> Somebody else has a Mark as well, and his number is 666. Now, modern Bibles do delete other verses in Mark, in case you're not aware. So, if you were to actually count the verses that have text in them, then you would get a different number than 666 because some of the verses just don't exist with text inside of them. However, they keep the same verse numbering as the King James Bible. And because they keep the same verse numberings, you can still go to the end of each chapter and find this many verses. However, they don't think it's worthy to, to change the verse numbering system, even though they don't think the verses themselves are inspired. They just will cut it out and just leave nothing there but a verse number. 
Okay, so what are these earliest manuscripts? Are these earliest manuscripts correct? Now, here's where we're going to see hypocrisy at the highest level. And not many people, very few people, I believe, know about this because this is something that I have researched personally based off of somebody else who shared something about these earliest manuscripts. And I went and looked at it online and realized something. This is hypocrisy. So this is Sinaiticus. When they say earliest manuscripts, by the way, you would think that it says some of the earliest manuscripts. Oh man. You would think there'd be a, what at least like a hundred or two hundred or or maybe even like, you know, twenty to fifty at least, right, of these manuscripts. No, they're talking about two or three manuscripts. Even then and to contrast that, they have hundreds of manuscripts with the ending of Mark. But two or three of them they have. They claim to be the oldest, and they refer to those manuscripts for their final authority to put in this line of doubt. So, your power to choose whether this is scripture or not comes from two or three manuscripts when there are hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of witnesses against that idea, which do have the ending of Mark. And even in these manuscripts, there are spaces, there is an empty space for the ending of Mark. Okay, it's just not, oh man, okay, so this is crazy. So, forget about the ending of Mark for a second. This is Sinaiticus. This is the codex that they say is the earliest manuscript, and because of this codex, which was only discovered in the 1800s, we can now change the entire Bible based off of this. The verses that you see are deleted in modern Bibles are because of this guy. This guy and his, his partner, Vaticanus. Vaticanus was found in the Vatican Library. Sinaiticus was found at the fake Mount Sinai location in Egypt. These are the manuscripts that they tell you, well, these are the earliest ones, and those verses that we delete, those passages that we change, we get that from here. We get that from these manuscripts. Now here's where the hypocrisy comes in. This is looking at Matthew chapter 27 when Jesus Christ is dying on the cross. Right here, we're looking at verse 49, and starting with this word that I have outlined in red, you have the following. Now, if you're familiar with the Bible, this is going to be really strange to you. It says, take spear, or spearman, pierce here or there his side, and come out water and blood. This is in Matthew 27, 49. And right here is the transcription of it on the website itself of Codex Sinaiticus's website, where it doesn't tell you in the translation that it says that. It says, but the rest said, wait, let us see if Elijah is coming to save him. But wait a second. In Greek, it has, in the actual manuscript, it has these words, taking a spear, pierce his side, and come out water and blood. But they don't put it in the translation of their own manuscript on their own website. But as you can see, 
it is clearly there, and here it is in green. So it's not as if these words are added or something like that where they writ wrote over other words or something. But why does that happen? Why do they not include that in the translation? Well, they don't think it's inspired scripture. And also, that would have Jesus Christ dying with a spear before he gives up the ghost. See, Matthew 27, 49 says, Then the rest said, Let be, let us see whether Elias will come to save him. Jesus, when he had cried again with a loud voice, yielded up the ghost. So you're saying right here, in between, is when the spearman pierced Jesus' side and out came water and blood? In this manuscript, this manuscript, Sinaiticus, which they used to justify deleting entire verses from the Bible, which they used to justify adding a line that makes you doubt the ending of Mark, and if it's not you that's doubting it, it's somebody else reading that and doubting it. They used this manuscript to justify changing the Bible, and yet they won't change the Bible to match this manuscript. No modern translation includes these words in Matthew 27, 49. Do you see the hypocrisy with that? Do you see how they don't even include it on their own website, but it's in the manuscript itself? Do you see the level of hypocrisy at work where they are able to pick and choose which words from the manuscript they want to be inspired the scriptures and which words they don't want to be. This is the final authority to take away scriptures of the Bible, but it's not the final authority to add scriptures to the Bible which are in it. What is it? Who is the final authority here? Who is picking what is in your Bible? Is it from this manuscript or is it from the minds of these scholars? Now, again, I'm not attacking the scholars themselves, and it's not one of them who is to blame. It's a whole collective thing going on of anything, but ultimately, I'm blaming one person, and that's Satan. That's the serpent, and I'll show you why. So, in the 666 verse of the New Testament, it says, Behold, we go up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man shall be betrayed unto the chief priests and unto the scribes, and they shall condemn him to death. I'm going to show you how modern translations, you have probably been taught that they are just easier to read versions than the King James. You have been taught that the these and the thous of the King James are, it makes it really hard to read that Elizabethan English. And for that reason, you need to get a modern version so you can understand the Bible. When I was reading for five years, the NIV and the ESV, and that's why I have grace towards other people who read these versions, because I was reading from these versions for five years. I had no idea there was differences in the Bible translations. I was clueless. I was ignorant. So I hope that this reaches somebody that is also in that place where they are, they're trying to find the truth. They're trying to seek out what, what is truly of God and what truly isn't. So... The problem with modern translations is not just the deleted verses. The problem is 
the text is changed virtually everywhere and you have no idea where because if you the way to keep track of it is to go through every single verse of a king james and go through every single verse of a modern bible and keep track of all the little changes that are made and it's there's every single chapter and they're filled they're all over the place and it's not just little things they're big things they're big deals so just a brief sample size, and this isn't even covering everything, not even close. These are just examples where Jesus is condemned to death, where Jesus Christ is kicked out of his own book. Let me say that again. Jesus Christ is kicked out of his own book. Do you really think God has anything to do with a Bible that kicks out Jesus Christ from his own book? Let's go through it. New King James, ESV, NIV, and NASB. Now I'm going to um, make a note now that the ESV, NIV, NASB are going to be very similar to basically any other modern translation like the NLT or the CSB or uh, what have you. They're all going to be very similar because those are the ones that will pull from the text that comes from here. Okay, so the, the modern translations besides the New King James, now the New King James does take from it a little bit as well, and the New King James is corrupt. There is no question about it that it is corrupt. And I'll show you here just Jesus Christ being kicked out of it. Um, but it is a separate animal than the other ones. The other ones are a hundred times more corrupt. Okay, so the New King James says, Genesis 22, 17. Now, this is in the Old Testament, and this is talking about Jesus Christ. And how do we know that? Galatians 3.16. Let's read Galatians 3.16 first. Now, to Abraham and his seed were the promises made. He saith not unto seeds, as of many, but as of one, and to thy seed, which is Christ. Now, an easy way to know that these, the thous, and the thys of the King James Bible and why they are there is actually very important. Thy means singular, one. Thee, thy, thou, if it's a T word, it's talking to one person or about one person. If it's a ye or a you or a your or yours, a Y word, it's talking to more than one person, two, three, or more people. That's a very important distinction in some passages. Very important. Because you know if it's talking directly to one person only, or if it's talking to a group of people. That is incredibly important information in some verses of the Bible. Now this one, the importance is not just the thy, but it's the importance is the seed. It's not seeds as of many. It's seed, singular. Now look at what it says in the King James. That in blessing I will bless thee. And what does it say the seed is? Thy seed, which is Christ. Thy seed is Christ. So the seed is Christ. That in blessing I will bless thee, and in multiplying I will multiply thy seed as the stars of the heaven, and as the sand which is upon the seashore, and thy seed shall possess the gate of his enemies. Because thy seed is Christ. He's going to, Christ is going to possess the gate of his enemies. New King James. Blessing I will bless you, and multiplying I will multiply your descendants. Notice the difference. Notice what's on the end. 
it says your descendants with an S. Do you see the problem with that in Galatians 3.16? He saith not unto seeds as of many. But here it says, I will multiply your descendants. That's many. As the stars of heaven, as the sand which is on the seashore, and your descendants shall possess the gate of their enemies. Jesus Christ has been kicked out of this verse, has been condemned to death in this verse, in the New King James Bible. Now let's keep going. John 8.35 And the servant abideth not in the house forever, but the son abideth ever. In the King James. Now notice how son is capitalized. And it says the son. That's talking about Jesus Christ. New King James. And a slave does not abide in the house forever, but a son abides forever. The Son, capitalized S, a Son. Now, it's an allegory or a story that alludes to Jesus Christ. However, in the King James, this is Jesus Christ talking about himself directly, not indirectly. He's talking about himself directly abiding forever, pointing to his deity. Now, over here, we don't have that. So, there's an issue. Jesus Christ getting kicked out of his book. Now, what's interesting with this one, which is very interesting actually, especially for people who think original only, which we've already reproved with the Bible itself, you don't have a distinction between uppercase and lowercase in Greek. So this verse in Greek, you could never know if that's directly talking about the Son, Jesus Christ, or if that's talking about a Son. You have no idea in Greek, but you do in English. You do in God's book, in his finished word. He has revealed it and made it clear who he's talking about. He's talking about his son, Jesus Christ. He's talking about himself. The ESV. After three score and two weeks shall Messiah be cut off, but not for himself. Jesus Christ was not killed for himself, crucified for himself, but he sacrificed himself for the world, for the sins of the world. Daniel 9.26 in the ESV says, And after the 62 weeks, an anointed one shall be cut off and shall have nothing. Jesus Christ has been taken out of this verse because that's not even capitalized. And that's not a sacrifice either. That's just dying. He's condemned to death in this verse. Matthew 18, 11 is not found in the ESV. Jesus Christ is kicked out, for the Son of Man has come, has come to save that which was lost. Luke 9, 56, same thing, for the Son of Man has not come to destroy men's lives, but to save them. And they went to another village. Look who's missing in the ESV. Do you think it's okay that Jesus Christ is kicked out of his book? Do you think it's okay with God that his son is being kicked out of his own word. And the scripture was fulfilled which saith, and he was numbered with the transgressors. Nothing. Verily, verily, I say unto you, he that believeth on me hath everlasting life. On me is deleted. Jesus Christ is deleted. And Philip said, If thou believest with all thine heart, thou mayest. And he answered and said, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. Gone. 
Luke 4, 8. And Jesus answered and said unto him, Get thee behind me, Satan. Not here. Wherefore thou art no more a servant but a son, and of a son than an heir of God, through Christ. Through Christ. Jesus Christ is not here. Is not in this verse in the NASB. We love him because he first loved us. We love. Who do you love? Each other? One time I got a card in the mail with this verse from a modern translation implying that they love us as a family because he first loved us. But that's not what the verse is saying. We love him. The modern translations have kicked out Jesus Christ out of this verse and out of many verses in the Bible. If that's okay with you, I guarantee you it's not okay with God. These are only a few examples. Now, why? Why did the devil come up with modern translations? Was it just to kick out Jesus Christ and get like revenge for losing in the wilderness, being defeated with scripture, being get rid of a couple mentions of Jesus here and there, then he'll get his revenge? No, I don't think it's that. I think it's much, much, I think the serpent is more subtle than you would ever imagine. So I'm going to give you a real quick list of things and a list of very serious reasons that point to why the serpent in his subtlety would have flooded our houses and our churches, our pulpits, our seminaries with all of these translations. First of all, he's the devil and he's incredibly smart and he knows he knows something about the King James Bible that you don't know. He knows this is God's word, and this is the most effective book in the history of mankind. Now, here in 2023, people might be laughing at such a thing. Well, it's the King James Bible, and there's all kinds of crazy stuff made up about the King James Bible that's not true. But when you actually look at this historically, let's step back in time to before these modern translations came out. How did people view this Bible? How did people view the King James Bible? <clears throat> I guarantee you, I, there's no way I would have found, I would have been the first to find these things. And by the way, I take no glory in that. All glory to the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm just trying to make a point here. If modern translations never came out, all of this stuff would have been found years ago. I guarantee it. Why do I say that? This is in a newspaper from 1870. And it's talking about the possibility of retranslating, revising the English Bible according to these new manuscripts they found. Though we saw that they don't even adhere to 100%. It says, the thought of touching the present version of scriptures, which is the King James Bible in 1870, in the hope to improve it, improve it, will doubtless strike many of our readers as sacrilegious. Some regard the present Bible as verbally inspired, not only the Hebrew and the Greek, but the English. Now look what it says. 
not only the thoughts and sayings which were read to the churches of the second century, but the division into chapters and verses, the headlines and the italic interpolations, which were added by King James 47, talking about the 47 translators. So this is saying in 1870, there are people that believe that chapter and verse numbers were inspired in the King James Bible. They thought the whole thing was perfect, including down to the chapter and verse numbers and the italics and everything. That's how I think too. I'd get along with those people well. If that line of thought continued until this day without any modern translation to interrupt that faith, 100% this would have been discovered because this is just common sense. I mean, this is just putting the people associated with this number together with the number and getting the number. So why does Satan, why does the serpent come out with all these versions? He knows this is the book of the Lord, Isaiah 34, 16. He knows this is so effective of a, of a Bible. He sees the unity of the Spirit. And guess what? Satan has no power to destroy the Scriptures, to defeat the Word of God. Jesus made that very clear in the text of the Bible itself, and that's what you saw. We just literally 666 him in, in the midst of that. So Satan has no power to destroy the Scriptures, but what can he do? He can get you to stop reading the real one. He can get you to start reading the counterfeit. So what happens when you do that, though? I mean, really think about this. If you have five versions of the Bible, are you going to memorize it? Which one? And of those ones that you have, some of them just updated a couple years ago. The NASB in 2020, the NIV in 2011, the ESV in 2016. So which one are you memorizing and how often do you need to re-memorize it? Do you really think that Christians today are memorizing the scripture like they used to? When there was only the King James Bible. Now, an interesting experiment for you to do that I've done personally, go watch those videos and get a notepad and a pen and keep tally, keep track of every single time where those videos where in Walmart, this guy will just go up and ask if they can quote a Bible verse for $20. And he just goes up to all these different strangers. These are not Christians. These are just random people at Walmart. He goes up and asks them, Guess how many times they quote the King James versus a modern translation? They literally, these strangers who know nothing about God or Jesus or the Bible, the one or two verses that they know are almost always from the King James. When I was keeping track, it was eight to nine times out of ten. King James was coming out of their mouth. How was that happening 400 years after this Bible came out? How is that happening with all these different modern versions which are supposed to be easier to read? There's a big reason why that's happening. The King James was memorized. The King James was not only memorized, it was read from when you were a child to when you were an adult, and it's what everybody read, 
and it became a form of pattern of thought and speech in the people, and it became internalized in the people. So when they were, I'm not, I'm not just spitting out words. I'm going to show you the proof, but imagine every single church in America having read the King James only from when they were a child to when they were adults, knowing it from front to back, having it memorized only in King James, you can't even imagine what that would be like. But we do have a point in time, again, from an old newspaper, before all these modern versions came out, that give us a little glimpse of what this was like. It says, at the close of this age came the came King James's Bible. Now, this was written in 1877. This English Bible, passing into the castles of the barons and into the cottages of the peasantry, interwoven as it was with their strong religious convictions, became the common coin of current speech. In common use, in the family, the school, and the church, and looked up to as a pattern of morals, it soon became a pattern of language also. Children learned to think and talk in Bible language. Do people, do children think and talk in Bible language today? Here the rich and the poor, the cultured and the rude tiller of the soil met on common ground. But today, the scholars and the, 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 man, the family going to church, they couldn't possibly meet on common ground because the scholar knows the original languages and knows so much more, can teach so much more about the Bible than it could ever be understood by the man at church who has all these different translations but doesn't actually know what the Word of God is. And as a result, in the great English-speaking race, there was hardly such a thing as a dialect, so common in France and other countries. The English Bible permeating all classes has unified them. Has unified them. Has unified them, not only in language, but in spirit also. Has unified them not only in language, but in spirit also. What do you think the serpent was doing when he came out with all these modern translations? Does this exist today? Let's keep going. This is in 1877. This isn't even that long ago, historically speaking. That other books have, assim have assisted in this work, we will not deny, but their influence has nevertheless been comparatively insignificant. For one copy of Shakespeare sent from the press, how many hundreds of Bible are given to the world, which enter far more deeply and molding influence into the lives and characters of those who read them. And why is it that during nearly three centuries, the English language has scarcely changed, except to add the technical terms necessary to give expression to the progress of science and art? Is it not due to the conservative influence of the English Bible more than to any other cause? 
Is it not because the words and phrases rendered familiar to the great body of the English-speaking race by daily Bible study can scarcely become absolute? Surely we are not claiming too much when we assert that the English Bible, more than all other causes, has given unity and permanency to the English language. The Bible itself shaped and preserved the English language that we're speaking in. So that's how much influence this Bible had. This was not just any random Bible translation. Let me keep reading. And now what treatment should the English Bible receive from our hands? What treatment should these scriptures which are from God, these scriptures which are from God, which have done so much to give unity and permanency to that language, which are the source of all that is noble and beneficent in our laws and government, and which is the foundation of our spiritual life, joys, and hopes, whose leaves are for the healing of the nations, and which must continue to be the pillars of order, intelligence, and salvation. What treatment, I say, should the English Bible receive from the hands of the English-speaking race? Unquestionably, they ought to be read, studied, prayed over, honored, and obeyed as the very words of the living God. Do you hear that about any modern Bible today? No. We believe there never was so much activity among the friends of the Bible as at present. The best talent of the age is utilized in the exposition of Bible truth. Is that happening today? There never was so many copies of the Bible printed as there are now. There never was such an effort made to give the word of life to heathen nations. There never was so much effective work done by Bible tract and publication societies. The seed of the word is being sowed with a lavish hand and finds much good soil. What do you think the serpent was doing with these modern translations? What has he undone? With these modern translations. People today will say, if you're King James only, you're causing division. Are you serious? Are you kidding me? The division has been caused by all of these modern versions, which all self-proclaim to not be perfect, to be an error. When we, when people had previously believed there was a perfect Bible and there was perfect unity in the, and everything was pointing to its perfection. So why does the serpent, number one, he wants you to stop memorizing the scripture. Number two, he wants you to stop reading and internalizing the scripture. Number three, he doesn't want your children to be reading and internalizing the same scripture growing up because then once they have that in their system the entire way they're growing up, they eventually grow up to be, it said, the best minds of this age are dedicated to Bible exposition. Yeah, that's what happens when, as a child, you learn the Holy Scriptures and you grow up internalizing the Scriptures. So, what have modern Bibles done to that? They have completely choked that process from happening. 
they're weakening your heart knowledge of the Word of God. They are dimming your light. They are, the Bible is the lamp into your feet, the light into your path. But if you have all these different versions saying different things, the light is not so bright. It's a little bit dimmer when you don't believe what you're reading. Not only is he dimming your light, not only is he taking away scripture from your heart and from your mind, the serpent is fracturing the relationship, your walk with Christ. In John 15, Jesus says to abide in him and he will abide in you. From without him, you can do nothing. And how do you abide in him? In his word. You have to abide in him in his word. And when you abide in him in his word and you keep his words, he abides in you and he makes his abode with you. When you read the Bible now, the question is, did God really say that in the original language? When the question should be, what does God want me to do? And I believe in 100% faith I have his word in my hand. He's going to show me what to do today. He's going to guide me. He's going to light my feet. That's not the questions that are being asked today when people are opening their Bibles. Because they don't think they actually have the very word of God itself. They think they just have a textbook pointing to the truth. But no one's going to look at a textbook and ask a textbook and ask God to speak through a textbook. I mean, maybe they could, but it's a lot different when you actually believe that what you have in your hands is the actual Word of God that's infallible, directly given to you by God Himself. Because when I open the book, God knows where I'm opening. His words are spirit and life, and they're going to speak to me, and they're going to guide me where He needs me to go. So the, the serpent is not, he wasn't born yesterday. He knows what he's doing. And the church is falling for it, head over heel. And it already fell for it. But perhaps the most important of all, it's not, it's not just, you know, he's taking Jesus Christ out. And it's not just he's seeding false teachings through these modern translations because they're teaching horrendous things, which could be a whole separate video. It's undermining the authority. The authority of Scripture, the authority of God's Word, has now been passed to the scribe. It's exactly what happened in the days of Jesus. The tradition of men is now the overruling authority over the Word of God, over the Scripture itself. Now, here's one of the biggest differences between the King James Bible and modern versions. And when you read them, you will know the difference. By the way, I didn't grow up King James. Like I said, I read from the ESV and the NIV for five years. I didn't even, the King James didn't cross my mind. I didn't, that was not one of the translations that I pick and chose from. ESV, NIV, and NASB are the three that I went back and forth between. And I can tell you, I didn't even know there was such a thing as King James only when I first started believing this book was from God because when I started reading it, I realized the difference. And the difference was being made in me by Christ. 
And that's something that I never had with modern translations, that this was living water. This wasn't just a textbook. This was actually interacting with the Word of God himself. So Mark 1.22 says this, And they were astonished at his doctrine, for he taught them as one that had authority and not as the scribes. So I leave you with this. Is this authority to you? Some of the earliest manuscripts do not include 169 to 20. Is this authority to you? Matthew 18.11 is not found for the version, English Standard Version. Where is the authority? Who are you trusting? Do you decide today what God's word should be? Which translation you should use? What it should mean in the original language? Or do you just simply open the book like a child and say, Lord, teach me. Lord, what is it that you would have me to do? That's all I do. And I'm nothing. But I really hope more people start doing that. Because God, God can reveal a lot to a very simple person. He can show you things that you could never imagine. He can do things in your life that you have never imagined for his glory, for his kingdom. Not so that you can get a bunch of stuff, but so that you can get closer to God and know who he is. And that's where you will find true joy in knowing the Savior and knowing the Lord, the Father. Don't you want that? So I hope this was a blessing to you. And I'm sorry it was a long video, but it was important. And I had to get this out. So it's in your hands. Go ask God, is this book really from you? With stammering lips and another tongue will I speak to this people. For all this they would not hear. Will you hear? Do you have ears to hear? May the Lord Jesus Christ be glorified, be with you. And even if you don't, please don't rise up in pride against it. We believe we have a perfect book. We believe we have God's word in our hands. Why are you against that? Why are you against me teaching my kids that they have a perfect book in their hands from God and they can trust it with all their heart? God bless, and I'll see you in the next video.